who do you want to interview? I don't know. Who would be know. like really exciting to interview? Oh, uh, can I bring JLo on the show? <laughs> yes. Outreach. Ask <laughs> her about tech. I don't know. JLo on the bike shed. <laughs> <laughs> when she says Jenny from the block, that's the blockchain, right? Yes. Yes, of course. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. I'm Steph. And I'm Chris. And we're developers here at ThoughtBot hoping to share a few of our adventures with you each week. So what's new with you, Chris? I started a new project this week. Hey, um, me too. Yes, it's very exciting. It's a little sad. We were working together and now we are less working together, although you're still nearby. But yeah, very exciting new thing for me to get to go out on. It's a client I've not worked with in the past and they're using React and TypeScript and GraphQL and all sorts of fun things. So All your favorite toys. I well, do, almost all your favorite toys. I like toys. a lot of these toys. It will be interesting to push all the more. So this is a large organization moving quickly, shipping a lot of code a large user base, just kind of all of the things coming together. And so they're trying to be purposeful about code quality and things like that, but also maintaining velocity. And that's a very delicate equilibrium. And so it's always interesting to see how different companies approach that. But yeah, thus far, it's been great. Probably the first thing that really caught my eye as I joined the team is they seem to have a really fantastic DevOps organization, which is something that I've worked with companies that have DevOps before. But I think in most cases, it was a newer adventure for them. And the DevOps team was sort of getting their feet under them and figuring out how to best work with the rest of the organization, where in this case, this team seems to be doing a fantastic job. And in particular, there are two things that stand out. One is they have a I'm going to say magical system for spinning up the full suite of applications necessary to be this app in the world. And you can just build one whenever you want. So a staging-like environment, but for every pull request or on-demand or for your local branch or anything like that. And so this is building back-end data service, GraphQL layer, and then the front end. And I think there's probably a couple more pieces that I don't even understand, but the magic is you just say, build me one of these environments, and then you get one. They're adding a thing where you can do it from a pull request. There'll be a button in GitHub that says, yeah, and build me an environment with this branch of my code. Oh, wow. Yes. That's cool. So can you run this locally as well? It sounded like you said you could do it for both. So the idea is, I think, local development of this particular app is sort of a misnomer because what we're working with is a front-end client-side app and then a GraphQL API that is sort of a gateway to a couple of different back-end services. And then there's at a minimum one core data service where the like Postgres database and things live. And so in order to quote-unquote run the app, you sort of need all of those pieces running and talking to each other. And that's a hard thing to do. So doing that locally is possible. As far as I can tell, most folks tend to point at one of these environments for the data. I'm working more on the front end side of things. And so I'm in that client side application, the React and TypeScript code base, and then pointing at one of these environments to get the data and, and interact with GraphQL and things like that. That's super cool. So you can issue a PR and then build an environment with your branch. So a little similar to the Heroku review apps, yes. but on steroids. <laughs> yeah, with basically orchestrating multiple things in the background and just making it all work. And that way, you know, UX can come in and do uh, pass of what is the look and feel of this code change. And you know the friction of that is now so much lower that that may be a review process that happens even before merging a pull request. So yeah, that's super nifty. That's cool. That's one of the nice things about joining a larger team that's already figured out some of those workflows. Because a lot of times you and I are used to joining teams where we have to help ease mm -hmm. those workflows to make the development process easier. So sometimes it's just kind of nice to show up and we can just get to work and yep. we don't have to focus on that stuff. Yeah, I think over the coming weeks, I'll certainly talk more about my adventures and all those technologies and things. But uh, how about you? You're also on a new project. I am. It's also a pretty large team. We've worked with them way back in the past before mm -hmm. I was at ThoughtBot. I think back when one of the developers I was working with mentioned that they were in ThoughtBot when we were adding the Ralph logo to one of our walls. So that was like way back in the day oh, for wow. my yeah. time, which is kind of neat. So I joined that team and... I think that one of the most exciting things about that new team that I've joined is their onboarding process. And I know this is something that you and I have talked about in depth in the past, but I am just super impressed with everything they've done where they've made me feel very included, very supported, and they did the process that I've always dreamed of for teams to have where I joined and I had someone that I was working with. They tend to note how many hours they think each engineer is going to be able to contribute during a sprint so that way they can account for any vacation time off 
and I was paired up with one of the other developers. They actually didn't include my time because they're seeing us as a unit. So Mm -hmm. our time is the same as each other's. And our first task was we were going to pick up a ticket together. We're going to get my environment up and running locally. I'm going to drive the full time. I'm going to make a simple change for a Trello ticket, learn the whole process, issue a PR, get it reviewed, push it to staging, but essentially go all the way from picking up a ticket and getting the environment working all the way to production. And I'm going to do that with a, another developer. And it's just so nice to have that onboarding experience because I've always wanted to do something like that. And ThoughtBot's pretty good where we do something very similar to that. But I just haven't experienced another team that's taking it that far into depth of giving you an onboarding buddy that's worked with you. So that's that's been super cool to see in the wild. Oh, that is fantastic. The purposeful onboarding, that like that small investment of time up front is so nice. It's interesting. I sort of had a similar experience. My onboarding, unfortunately, some of the infrastructure and like account access stuff didn't go as smoothly at the beginning of the week. I think there were other things happening in the organization. Some new folks were joining the IT group, et cetera, and it just kind of got lost in the shuffle. There are other thought botters that are already on the project. So I was able to pair with them and they're all, you know, up and running. And so that was perfectly fine. But I did have sort of an onboarding buddy, someone who helped me through first pull requests and those sort of things. And then actually, I've deployed to production at this point, which is always exciting to get to that milestone so early. But that person was Matt Sumner, because he happens to be there. And Matt tends to not be scared of doing things. It's a great way to put it. He is very purposeful on the things that he does in a way that I find incredibly useful. Like Matt is never scared to delete code. He's probably the person that champions it the most that I've seen, and I think that's absolutely fantastic. So this is an example of we needed to make a quick change. He came over, helped me. He also is very well-versed in this project. He's been on it for a number of months, so it was great to have that, although it was interesting that it was a thought botter that helped with my onboarding there. Yeah, Matt's voice, his confidence when it comes to making decisions and deciding what to do next is a voice that I strive for to have internally whenever I'm working on code, because if I'm working with him, he's like, yeah, let's let's just do it. So I try to internalize that more and be like, what would, what would Matt Sumner do in this case <laughs> to amp up my bravery? <laughs> yeah, that's cool. The team I'm joining also has two other thought botters, but we're on different teams. Mm-hmm. So while we're together, we're not together. We can commute over to the same office together, but yep. we're otherwise not spending any time together just yet. So that's been a lot of fun. Uh, The project I'm joining has Rails and Ember. I hear there's some Go and Elixir in some of the other apps. I don't know if I'll be working in those apps. All the technologies. All the technologies. But I think the app that I'm going to be mostly focused on is just a Rails and Ember app, which I haven't written any Ember. So that'll be fun to dive into and to learn along the way. They also have a very similar well-thought-out process of getting developers up and running, similar to what you're talking about, where their DevOps team has worked hard to make it easy to have everything running. They also have a program that you can run locally that will install everything you need. It's going to pull down all the repos that you need access to, and then they're using Docker to then run each of those applications. So there's still some tricks to it to understand what to run and do, but otherwise it's been pretty smooth to just run that, and then I can be up and running. It mostly comes down to making sure I have the correct credentials and access to everything. Credentials, always a stumbling block. Yeah, I think that's the one that, that slowed me down the most. And some other fun news, I wrote a bit of VimScript. Oh. Which was totally That's the new. worst programming language. <laughs> Wait, I thought you liked VimScript. I like what VimScript lets me do. Oh, okay. VimScript is a terrible, terrible programming language. And I say that with so much love in my heart. I've written a lot of VimScript, but... Man, what a mess of a language. <laughs> but what'd you write? I was fixing something in our .files project, which is our ThoughtBot project, where we store our configuration files for certain tools like Tmux, Git, ZSH, and there's one more I'm forgetting. Vim? Vim. Oh, of course, Vim. Yeah, that one. <laughs> Let's not forget Vim. <laughs> I can't, no matter how hard I try. <laughs> I love that that's the one I just left off the list. <laughs> So there was something that you and I had done a while back where we switched out Control-P for FCF for Fuzzy Find because FCF has proven to be a lot faster. But there was a concern in there where it was causing an error for some folks that had FCF already installed, but in a different way than we presumed folks might have it installed. So I was updating that to address the error. So I wrote very little Vim scripts. Like I switched out a function for another function to check if something is already existing in a path or exists in a directory. So it's very little, but it was just fun to like Mm. get to dive into that because it's very rare that I get to be in those files and feel... Like, I know what I'm doing, which is still, I'm not there yet, but I'm getting one step closer now. And I was curious, when I was looking for docs to understand what VimScript functions existed so I could figure out what to use, Mm -hmm. I'd had trouble finding those. I found one. I think it was 
themhelp.org. They have a pretty good list of all the functions and Mm -hmm. then a brief explanation of each one. But what would you use? So there's a couple of things that come to mind. There's a wonderful book. It's like a free online available book called Learn VimScript the Hard Way which is, I would say at this point, sort of the canonical introduction to VimScript as a language and how to actually like write Vim plugins. Uh, it's by a gentleman named Steve Losh and just absolutely fantastic. It's just basically a web page that you can go to. That will sort of provide the high level thinking if you really want to get into it. But if you're just looking for the answer to like, what are the functions that are available, Vim has all of the help built in. And so that's the recommended approach. And specifically, I think if you're on help functions, just like colon H-E-L-P space functions, Mm -hmm. it will provide you a list, which is essentially an index of all the functions with like a one sentence summary of this function lets you get the index from a list. This one does this, this one does this. And then from there, you can jump into further parts of the docs because the docs all have sort of a linking system, almost like HTML links, but not quite tags essentially is what it is. But yeah, those would be the two things. And then mostly it's just experiment and trying and knowing all of the weird internals of them because it's esoteric and different. Yeah. Okay, cool. I'll have to look into that if I'm back in Vim scripts. Although I might be done. It's one of those things where I've made the change <laughs> and it's working now and until something is wrong again or if I need to fix something, I, I probably won't be back in it for a while. But it was a fun side adventure to go into and figure out how to validate the change that I made is working. And I discovered Vim's runtime path. I wasn't aware that that was something that I could check and know what's executable in Vim's eyes because I'm used to checking my shell's path and seeing what's executable there. But in this case, exploring Vim's runtime path was what gave me the insight that I needed to verify, oh, we're adding the wrong location to this path. And then that's why it's erring because it's looking for an executable in a location that doesn't exist. Oh, interesting. Had we written the code that was adding the wrong runtime path, or was that coming from fcf.vim? Yeah, it's something that we'd introduced because we have the FCF Vim plugin by June Gun, mm-hmm. which relies upon June Gun's other plugin, FCF. And when we were checking, we were trying to help those that already have FCF installed via Homebrew, that if you already have it installed, we're not going to install it for you again. But the way we were asking is we were checking if FCF is executable. And just because it's executable doesn't mean that it was installed via Homebrew. So we were checking if it's executable, and Uh. then we were setting the path for Homebrew's directory where it installs Simlinks. So then for folks that had FCF installed but had installed it to a different location, we were setting the wrong path in Vim's runtime path because we were saying, oh, you installed this via Homebrew. Cool, it must be here. And then that's not true. So then folks were trying to open Vim and then use FCF. And it was throwing an error that it couldn't find a defined function because it didn't have access to FCF. Interesting. This is one of those complexities that comes up when you're using like, different levels of package managers and things. I run into this all the time with like NPM install some global package. But then is it only available in that version of when I have that node version active or like a Ruby gem install of a global thing? But now which version? And it's all just very complicated. Yeah, it was fun to go through and figure out though. So then I updated it to specifically check. So I just removed the assumption that if it's executable, that person installed it via Homebrew. And now I'm explicitly checking Homebrew's directory. I'm checking that user local directory to see if FCF exists there. And if it does, great, then we'll reference that. Mm -hmm. And if not, then we install FCF for the person. As an aside, do we install or do we have FCF included in the laptop script? I don't know. I don't know if it's in the laptop script. I think probably not. But that's maybe something we should also add because FCF is one of the greatest utilities ever made. Uh, I do love it. It's fantastic. I use it for everything. Like I had fuzzy finding in Vim, but now I use it for like LS pipe through FCF. And now I have a fuzzy finder for all of the files in a directory, or I use it for switching Git branches. I use it for switching Tmux sessions. Oh. I have FCF'd just about everything in my terminal and it's fantastic. Oh, you have to show me that. I don't think I've seen that workflow of using FCF for more of the Git functions. Git and Tmux and a, and a whole bunch of things, really. Anything nice. that is a list that I will need to find a particular value within, I will probably pipe it through FCF at some point. Uh, and then there's weird like previews, and you can do code syntax highlighting previews of the files you're looking at. Just the amount of stuff and speed. FCF is just an incredibly well-designed utility. I'm so impressed by the work that was done on it and then all of the different ways I can use it. And it's one of my favorite things. It's becoming one of mine. It's been super helpful. But yeah, so that's pretty much my recent adventures, onboarding and VimScript. Cool. Well, now you can add VimScript to your resume, which is super helpful. In the will you endorse search. me on LinkedIn for VimScript? <laughs> yes, I absolutely will. That is happening 
Hold on. I I want to see. I'll probably do it after the episode, but I will do that. I want to see if that changes how recruiters talk to me. (laughs) Oh, hey, Steph, I uh, heard you really like VimScript, and we're trying to build a healthcare startup. (laughs) That seems totally aligned. Yeah. Oh, and similar sort of follow-up type things. A few episodes, I think it was two episodes ago, we chatted about materialized views and issues in testing. And I was hopeful that we might be able to get a bite from one and only Derek Pryor. And we did. Derek replied with a couple of thoughts to me. And then there was actually a number of folks on Twitter who also replied. So first, everyone out there who's replying and sending us things on Twitter or via host at bikeshed.fm. This is fantastic. We love hearing from folks, hearing the questions, hearing follow-ups, getting corrections. Uh, It's one of the best ways to learn something is to be wrong on the internet. So uh, yeah, keep telling us things. It's a scary way, but I appreciate it. Yeah, it's it's our way. That's for certain. So to recap, materialized views, they're a way to essentially cache the output of a SQL query in the database. They make tests complicated because we have to refresh those views all the time. So Derek's first suggestion was maybe we could look into the test prepare hook within, I think that's a Rails, maybe it's probably a Rails thing, and use that to actually rewrite the materialized view calls to say, instead of create materialized view, which is the SQL DDL instruction to the table, just be create view. So now we've dropped the materialized part. Cool. Now it will just transparently run the queries each time. Sorry, I know we've got a couple more from Derek that we're going to cover, but that's an interesting idea of rewriting the materialized view to actually be a create view, because I think that falls into the idea that someone had suggested on Twitter earlier this week about having two different schemas, Mm -hmm. and it caused both of us some hesitation, that idea of having two different schemas. So that's cool. That was just calling out the fact that that's now two people who have suggested that idea. Yeah, I think the suggestion coming in from Twitter was to actually have two different schemas, which my initial reaction to that was I was concerned about those getting out of sync, and I didn't want to have to maintain the two different ones, versus I think what Derek is suggesting is to dynamically alter the schema just at that one point in time, like write it, test prepare, rewrite it so that we drop all the materialized references, and then we should be good. The caveat that he commented on, though, was there are other things that materialized views have that regular views don't. Mm -hmm. So particularly the possibility to have an index. I'm not terribly familiar with these, but this is something that he highlighted. So that's one sort of edge case. And I could see there being more like, how do I actually do this? Is this the DB schema file and I'm telling Rails? So am I like rewriting that file? Do I dump it to a temporary one? And suddenly they're like, what if it's the structure.sql? That's a different file. Is it the same manipulation there? So this feels... Potentially, if it could work, it would be great because now it's solved at a foundational level, but it sounds very brittle. That's perfect. Yeah, I was going to say it sounds a little brittle, but interesting. But then the other ideas, and a few people on Twitter as well as internal to ThoughtBot and Derek suggested, what if we were to flip this on its head and actually just have some background refresh that was happening? Particularly one of the things we talked about was what if every factory bot create call transparently also refresh the views. And Derek actually suggested, maybe we should just have a refresh all within Scenic. So right now, Scenic has a refresh view on the associated model. But what if we had a refresh all, like scenic.refreshall class method there that would just do that for all of the materialized views. So now, instead of having to do a bunch, we can just do that one call. I think there's a sequential thing that might be an issue there. So we couldn't just arbitrarily run them all. We would need to know that order, but that's an idea. And then maybe if we had that, then just every factory bot create, we run it. (laughs) Just refresh all the time. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, it seems like a bad idea. (laughs) It Um, does. But it's sort of the other end of the spectrum of, well, rather than trying to make it just work, what if we were to do the work, but in a transparent way? I feel like that's something that could easily get missed, too, because you're introducing a new factory and you're not going to know. Now, that's the place that we forget that we're supposed to refresh views. We've just sort of like relocated where we call that refreshing. My hope would be that we could solve this, like hook into factory bot somehow Uh and say factory bot whenever create happens after doing the normal create stuff, also refresh materialized views. It is an interesting idea, especially if you could specify which factories you care about. So taking a bit further, instead of doing all of them, but if you could give it a list of the models that you know are associated with materialized views and say, okay, for this list, anytime we call create for one of these types of records, let's refresh all the views. Because then you'd at least be reducing it to the ones that you know are associated with the views, but it is still a lot of refreshing. Okay, cool. What else? I think those are the main, like, those are the two big camps of ideas. But then Derek did say a thing that was sort of my foundational concern from the start, which is if we were to do any of these, now our test system behaves differently than our production system. And 
could this cause us to forget that we actually need to refresh these in production and therefore yes our test pass but now production is just silently showing no data in some places or showing the wrong out of date data my sense is that's sort of implicit to caching like we have to handle the caching somehow if we're opting into materialized views, hopefully we're also thinking about that strategy and either setting up the background jobs or the triggers or whatever it is that will actually do that refreshing. But it is sort of the foundational concern anytime we have a difference between tests and production or staging and production is let's minimize those. Let's have as few of those as possible. And this would be a new distinction between those environments. Yeah, that's a fair concern because it's making me think that while this is a bit painful and test is at least a bit more obvious that this is something that we have to concern ourselves with and it's something that we have to maintain. And if we find fancy ways to move it into the background, like in reality for production, like we still do need to set up a job or something to refresh these views. Having it in these tests is painful, but it also at least highlights something that we have to manage. I almost wonder if there's an, a smaller like in between because right now we have to know the exact view that we're going to refresh for a test. So part of me likes the idea of having something that refreshes all the views so I can have this abstracted class that I call in a test that will just refresh all the views. And then at least I can remove myself a little bit from knowing which one I'm refreshing. But that still puts me in a place when I'm writing a test. I have to still call that line or I still have to call that class and refresh. Yep. I don't know. I'm still torn. Like, I liked your idea in the beginning of, like, not having to care. But the more we talk about abstracting it away from the test details, I get a little nervous about it. Yeah, I definitely feel that. I think I've convinced myself that I'm okay with it. And in particular, the parallel example of the sidekick or the background jobs and running those in line, that one is interesting to me as a consideration because caching should just be a transparent thing that happens. It's an optimization, but it doesn't fundamentally change the way the system works. Whereas changing from asynchronous background job processing to synchronous inline processing of a job, like async versus sync is a very big distinction. If all my tests tell me that everything is synchronous, then that's not true. And it may have more subtle repercussions. And yet we still do it. Granted, I don't think it's on by default. I think you have to opt into that. And I think you have to opt into it for this reason, that it is a more foundational difference. But like caching, we go to the null store for that. So I don't know. It is subtle. It's definitely a consideration. And I think that general idea of production staging parity, production test parity is super important to keep in mind. But man, these are annoying. And <laughs> I don't want to have to do it. <laughs> so... Yeah. The drive behind any change <laughs> just to make stuff less annoying. <laughs> I mean, I think that's the entire reason our industry exists is we're lazy and we want to automate things. So <laughs> kind of, yeah. So if you had to choose one, if you're going to implement this onto a project, hmm. would you go for rewriting the create materialized view to just create view and then see how that goes? Or would you go for the factory bot approach? For now, I would definitely start with the foundational change create materialize view to create view. Because if I can solve it at that level, then I don't need any other hacks. I don't need to hook into other things. I don't need to care about factory bot internals or anything like that. Ideally, just push it all the way down and make the view just do the view thing. There's also the order dependence thing, which I think is really hard to solve if we're trying to manually refresh in an automatic way via any other layer. So the create materialize view change feels like the best starting point, but Again, I'm not sure that it's actually feasible. So, We should set time aside for a future Friday mm. and play with this and report back how it goes. I agree. Oh, and thank you to Derek for responding to us. That was awesome. Yes, awesome. thank you, Derek. It's nice to have you out there listening. Hi, Derek. We're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Honey Badger. Honey Badger is a zero instrumentation, 360-degree coverage of errors, outages, and service degradations for your web apps. If you have a web app, you need it. HoneyBadger works on all of our favorite languages and frameworks, including Ruby on Rails, JavaScript, specifically React and Vue, Laravel in the PHP world, and Elixir in Phoenix. HoneyBadger is different from other error trackers. They go beyond errors to give you full confidence in the health of your production systems. Their integrated exception, uptime, and cron slash service monitoring will save your bacon. HoneyBadger features integrations with all of the tools you already use. So it integrates with PagerDuty. Well, we don't use PagerDuty at ThoughtBot, but I've used it for client projects. Uh, so it integrates with PagerDuty, Slack, GitHub, GitLab, Datadog, and VictorOps, which is a really nice just way to surface your errors across tools that you're already using to track parts of your system. Yep. I also appreciate that it covers a bunch of different things. So I've, in the past, I've had to cobble together a system using 
pinged him for uptime tracking and other tools for something else and something to keep track of SSL and certificates and things like that. But Honey Badger has it all built in. It's just one system for all of that. And then, like you said, it integrates back out with everything. So it just kind of fits in and, and does what we need. So head on over to honeybadger.io and let them know that you heard about Honey Badger from the bike shed during signup. And thanks to Honey Badger for sponsoring today's episode. All right, Steph, well, uh, shifting away from that, I want to try something a little bit different. I want to put you in the hot seat. So you, a few episodes back, put me in the hot seat with uh, GraphQL Objections Bingo. I personally really enjoyed that. So now we're going to switch things around, and I want to try a game called Overrated Underrated with you in the hot seat. All right. Tell me more. All right. So Overrated Underrated is... It's a segment in a podcast that I've listened to called Conversations with Tyler. It's a podcast by Tyler Cowan. And in it, he has on guests from a wide range of different backgrounds and specialties and thinking. And he will, for whatever their specialty is, just ask them a number of rapid fire. He'll actually just say basically a topic. And he'll say, overrated, underrated. And so the guest, it's their job to answer, do they think, based on their interpretation of how popular or how well-received that topic is in the broader community, do they think it's overrated, underrated, or adequately rated? So those are the three options. And critically, this is not about whether you think this thing is good or bad. It's more about, I think the world is really really all about this topic right now. And I personally don't think it's that interesting or world-changing, so I think it's overrated. Or I think this thing's pretty good, but no one's talking about it, so therefore I think it's underrated. So those are the sort of answers we're going for. Okay, so I've got three responses I can choose from. Yes. Okay. And critically, my stance would be that these are going to be your opinions, so you can't be wrong. Oh, that's great. I love this game already. Right, exactly. (laughs) So uh, I'm going to ask you about a bunch of things. You're going to tell me your thoughts on them. But in terms of anyone out there listening, this is just a data point of now you'll get to know what Steph thinks about a bunch of topics. But fundamentally, you can't be wrong because they're your opinions. All right. So there we go. So uh, I've tried to pick a mix of topics between technical and more process-oriented, so we're going to have a a whole bunch of things, but uh, let's get started. The first topic, overrated or underrated, retro or retrospectives. Oh my gosh, underrated. Underrated. Yeah, that's an easy one. You think most people are not valuing them or? I think most people are often not sure how to run retros and do undervalue them. I think they're incredibly powerful, and I think people fall into the trap of they've experienced poor retros or poorly run retros and therefore don't value them. But I think they're definitely underrated. Excellent. I like the definitive answer for the first one, too, because I'm sure there are going to be some other lukewarms. Uh, Well, you did that one to be nice to me. You know I have strong opinions on that one. I do. It's true. (laughs) Uh, Next up, we have Elm. Elm, the programming language. Oh, I'm going to go underrated. Underrated. Okay. Yeah. I feel like it, it is talked about a good bit, but I feel it's more in the circle that I'm in that I hear more about Elm. As soon as I leave ThoughtBot, I don't hear about Elm very much. So yeah, I think it's underrated. I think there's a lot of positive things to be done with Elm, and I'm excited to use more of it. Awesome. Next up, test-driven development. Ooh, you know, I hesitated. I know, I know. (laughs) Because I want to say it's underrated, but at the same time, I want to add the caveat that I also strongly believe in BDD, the behavior-driven development, where it's not necessarily you have to write a test for every single thing, but maybe you write a larger feature spec. I'm still going to go underrated. I still strongly believe in test-driven development or behavior-driven development, and I, I need it in my life. Need it in your life. I, I like do. That. All right. But I like the reference to BDD. That's good. Mixing things up. Next up, Elixir and Phoenix. Ooh, gosh, I haven't used that in so long. It was interesting because it came onto the scene. It made such a splash, and I really enjoyed using it. I'm going to say underrated for that one, too. I would really like to be back on an Elixir Phoenix project. Every time I've gone back into that world, I've really enjoyed it. Awesome. This will be a fun one. GraphQL. (laughs) Oh, this is going to test our friendship. It sure will. (laughs) I'm going to go adequately rated. Adequately rated. Yes. Okay. Because I think it is very hyped. It might just be my company (laughs) as well. But no, uh, with clients and everyone else, too. I think it is exciting. I think it has a lot of great features to offer. It's really just, it's just cool. But I think it's adequately rated. Wow. All right. Good that we've gotten adequately rated this early on. Agile. Overrated. Overrated. Only because I think folks can take too much of a dogmatic approach with it. And I think Agile is meant to be flexible and 
bend to the needs of each team. And I think it can become too much of a doctrine that folks feel the need to follow to the letter. Interesting. So I guess implicit in some of these, and I think it's been more obvious in the previous ones, but what does agile mean? When I said the word agile, what comes to mind? What are you thinking of? That's a great question. I'm thinking of some of the approaches that folks follow where they feel the need to have scrum masters. And I think that's the main one that comes to mind where I think it can be a little too dogmatic in the approach where you have to follow a set of rules of like how a sprint is organized and then having someone that is a scrum master that leads it. I've seen it work really well, but then I've also seen it where I felt it was painful and didn't help. So that's why I I lean towards the overrated side of it. But otherwise, I think Agile is great. It's just there are, of course, caveats like with anything else that you have to watch out for. Cool. Moving on, React Native. I haven't used React Native. So this is one I don't feel like I can weigh in. I love the idea, the fact that it runs on iOS and Android. That seems amazing. But I haven't actually used it. Is there a I plead the fifth option for this game? Yes. Yeah, definitely. And I'm glad we got one of those in there, too, because it keeps it honest. Got to stay transparent. Yeah. Regular expressions. (laughs) Adequately rated. (laughs) They're great when I need them. I never remember how to write them. So yeah, they're in the world and I appreciate them, but I wouldn't hype them up any more than I already do. Cool. Uh, (laughs) Moving on. Stand-up. Ooh, uh, underrated. I really like stand-up. I think every team should have stand-up. Do you often find yourself on teams that don't have stand-up? I have been on teams where I think they would skip stand-up frequently if no one else was advocating for it. So each team I have been on has stand-up, but I think a lot of folks see it as more of a chore and would happily just post stand-up in Slack if they could, and which does help. I mean, at least a Slack stand-up is better than no stand-up, but I really appreciate just the few minutes of getting together and talking through what you're working on that day, and then also the stand-up portion of it. I really like that part, too. And by that, you mean the literal standing up? The literal standing up part. I think that part's nice, too, because it keeps it from feeling like a formal meeting. Mm -hmm. You're just supposed to huddle, share your updates, and then go back to what you're doing. Versus if you go into a meeting room and sit down, it has a different vibe. Perfect. I love the two clarifications there of Slack stand-up, you don't really consider the same thing. And sitting stand-up, you also don't consider the same thing. Stand-up is a meeting that we stand, we give a quick summary of what we're doing, and that you are a fan of it, and you think it's underrated. Yeah, all of that's perfect. All right, moving on. Vim, the text editor Vim. You know, I had a funny episode this week where I was talking about how much I love Vim, but I was setting up a new laptop and I hadn't had everything set up yet. So I was pairing with someone and I wasn't fully set up to use Vim. So I started struggling and I was like, oh, I still need to do this and do that to get it set up. And they're like, well, see, this is a great reason to use some of the other editors because you just download it and you're good to go. So that was kind of a, a funny experience. I'm going to go with adequately rated. Mm. I really like Vim, but I also really respect anyone that's like, yeah, it's just not for me. And I feel more productive in a different editor. Yeah, there is a lot of hype out there about Vim. That too. So I can see that. Cool. Uh, React. React, the view framework from Facebook. (laughs) To clarify, because it's just a word that... I like how you're clarifying while I'm making thinking faces as to what answer I'm going to give. (laughs) I'm going to go with adequately rated, and that's just because I haven't used it a ton. So there's a lot of hype around it. So I don't want to say it's underrated because I feel like it already gets a great deal of attention. Yeah, I'm going to go with adequately rated. All right. Story points. Overrated. I feel like you knew this one was coming. (laughs) Sort of a gimme, but, uh, you know, I wanted to, like I said, balance between the process and the otherwise and and give you a chance to expound upon that. I do love when teams take time to discuss tickets and try to break down the work and they'll discuss it in very loose terms if they think it's small, medium, large, or even if you use numbers for that. But then when you start using something more nuanced like the Fibonacci sequence, it just it becomes too much process for me. And I don't find it that helpful between like if it's a a four versus a 13. Although Actually, that's helpful because then it's like smaller versus large. But if you have like a two versus a four, that doesn't really tell me a lot. Mm -hmm. So I enjoy the conversation that comes from breaking down tickets as a team. But I think story points are overrated. So perhaps story points is a conversational tool underrated story points as a velocity tracking etc overrated oh yeah that's a great way to say it yes moving on docker Ooh, i'm gonna go with adequately rated when i use docker and it works it's wonderful i just feel like i often struggle like as soon as it stops working i'm inexperienced enough with docker that I, i have a very hard time figuring out 
why it's not working. So then that feels like a big time suck. So I'm going to go with adequately rated. I feel like there's already a lot of hype about it in the world, and it receives a lot of love. Pair programming. Underrated. 100% underrated. That's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot of underrating. I think it's similar to the retros. I think people have, one, maybe not tried it, or two, they are in a team that doesn't advocate for it, or they've had a negative experience with it. Because I can certainly see how working with someone, it takes a lot of energy to be accommodating to that person and to work well together. So I can see why it could go poorly. But I think pair programming is incredible. It certainly makes me happier. I love the days that I pair program. So I'm going to go with underrated. Awesome. Uh, moving on to a technology one, JavaScript. Uh, yeah, no, I'm going to go adequately rated. I feel like it's already hyped. It gets so much of both worlds. Like it has the people who hype it up and we're getting a new JavaScript framework every week. So there are people who just are doing their best and loving it and always producing something new with it in ways that they think will make JavaScript better and everyone will love it. But then there's everyone else who just hates it so much <laughs> that I feel like it's not fair to go either way. It's not overhyped. It's certainly loathed by other people in the community. So I'm going to go with adequately rated. It's already in that middle zone of there's strong camps on both sides. Mm. It is an interesting thing about JavaScript where it's got such a widespread, it's got so many different frameworks and approaches and people using it and for different things that JavaScript is not any one thing anymore, so I guess it was an unfair question. No, it's a fun yeah. one. Deadlines. Ooh. Oh, I have nuanced feelings about deadlines. Fantastic. I... Break them apart. Okay, cool. I like that I can break this down a little bit and I don't just have to give like one answer and move on. So deadlines, I think, are a crucial tool that we need to help us get stuff done. On the other side, I think it's deadlines can be incredibly detrimental to a team, especially if they're set by someone outside of that team or someone who doesn't have insight into the process as to what's going to need to be done to accomplish a deadline and if they're just set arbitrarily because it seems like a good date to ship something. So I think deadlines can be the opposite of what we want to encourage a team to get something done. But at the same time, I think they're great to have. Someone go with adequately rated, but I just have a lot of feelings mixed up in there as to like how they get set. Yeah, it sounds, again, like there might be two different answers that you have there where as an internal tool for constraining something, that would be underrated. But as an external forcing mechanism with some arbitrary things going on, that's far overrated or detrimental. Yeah, that's one way I've seen deadlines get used that I really appreciate where it's this idea if we're going to ship a feature by this particular date, it's going to help us scope aggressively. Mm -hmm. And I love that use of deadlines because then you're being very honest of like, what do we need to do? to get something out into the world and what's the bare minimum of something we can get out into the world. And in that sense, deadlines really help with that. But then as you mentioned, when they're forced upon a team or set arbitrarily, then I see no value in them. They cause a lot of pressure and stress on teams that don't then produce a lot of value. All right, one final one, uh, which may seem like an easy one, but I'm actually interested, Rails. <laughs> you know, my heart wants to say underrated because I love Rails. But but I hesitate just because I also feel like it falls into the camp of adequately rated. Rails is certainly already pretty hype. There are lots of folks that love Rails. We have wonderful conferences and Ruby conferences. So I feel like there's already a lot that happens in the community. And then you also have the detractors of folks who don't like to use Rails and, and don't like Ruby. So I feel like it's kind of like JavaScript. I don't like comparing those two. But <laughs> for the sense of this game, I feel like it fits in the middle of where there are strong camps on both sides. So it's, it's probably fairly adequately rated once you balance out all the opinions. And then we're also part of that positive opinion in the world of where we strongly advocate for Rails. We sure do. This was great. This was fun. Yeah. Thank you so much for uh, agreeing to hop into the hot seat. I really enjoyed that. Did I win? Do uh, I get a prize? You both won and lost. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> I think having you in the hot seat, underrated. So let's do this again sometime. <laughs> Stephanie in the hot seat, adequately rated, but the game, underrated. All right. This was fun. Excellent. Awesome. Well, after uh, that fun game, I think we have a listener question that we can answer next. This question comes to us from a student who is earning their CS degree. Their question is regarding advice for CS students. Specifically, they wrote in, what sort of advice would you give to CS students and self-taught individuals who have a decent grasp of fundamental language concepts and fundamental HTML and CSS, but don't have any projects? How do you make the jump to developing something meaningful? I've self-diagnosed my situation as a mix of option overload and imposter syndrome. 
All right. There's a good bit here that we can break down. Should we start with the project part first? Sure. So I think the question is, do you need to have a first project or like a portfolio piece in order to get that first job? And I think the answer is like anything else in the world. It depends. I think it is helpful. I definitely had one when I was starting to try and find jobs. And I think it was useful to be able to show the sort of code that I can write. But also, I think about UIs and I'm thinking about products holistically. And that I think was very helpful talking to ThoughtBot in specific. But I think it will vary depending on how warm of a relationship you have. So if you know the individuals already and you can talk in more detail about code that you write and things that you know, then it becomes less of a necessity. In fact, I would never say that it's a necessity, but I think it can be a nice to have as a way of demonstrating what you know and what you're capable of doing if you don't have another mechanism to do that. Yeah, I like what you said where you wouldn't advocate that it's a necessity. I think having a project serves two values. It's one, a talking point, because a lot of times when someone is just trying to figure out what you like, what you work on, what you know, they'll reach for, do you have a side project? Or it's just something that you can bring up with an interviewer and discuss some of the things that you're working on. So it really just serves to sort of like grease the conversation wheels. And then the other part that it serves is a safe play space. So if there's something that you want to test and try out, then having a personal project is a great space for that. But I I agree. I don't think you need one. I think it just certainly can be helpful for those two reasons. And it's also depending on what you're doing with your GitHub profile, because that's somewhere that folks are going to look when they're trying to understand more about you and the languages that you like to use and the projects that you like to contribute to. Having a project there can be helpful just so there's something to go and look at. But then perhaps you're also working on open source or some other projects. And so you don't need a personal project in addition to the work that you're already doing. As a related question, and I'm interested in your thoughts on this, Steph, Should you have or do you need to have a blog slash personal site? I don't. You don't personally? I don't. Mm. Um, I do have a page that has like a resume style to it. I created that when I was between jobs and then I just needed something to share with folks where they could easily see what I've done and I didn't want to just send them to LinkedIn. But yeah, I don't have a personal site or a blog. I just have that one page where I can link folks if they want to review and easily click to some of my other projects that I have. Yeah, I I would count that then as like a personal site. You don't have a blog, it sounds like, but you do have a personal site and some links to other stuff that you've done. Yeah, it's pretty much like an HTML, CSS version of my resume that's on there. So I, I do have that where it's out in the world. So yes, I okay, then I'll walk it back. I probably do have one, but just not something that I actively develop on and try right. to keep up with. So I'm guessing then you would say that you don't think it is a requirement. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. I don't think it's a requirement. Yeah, I would definitely agree as well. I don't think it's a requirement. I do think it's a nice thing to have, both having a place on the internet that you can point people to that then points at other stuff that you have. Here's my Twitter, here's my GitHub, here's some other things that I've worked on, etc. I think a blog can be extremely useful as another tool similar to a personal project that you can show off where you can say, here are things that I've written. And a really interesting part is I think a lot of people hesitate and don't want to write a blog when they're very new because they're like, what do, what do I have to say? But an interesting bit is you can actually show growth through a blog. So if you write a blog post and it says one thing and like that thing's, it's fine. It's you're learning something. You learned something novel this week. So you're highlighting that. And then a few weeks later, you're writing something else. And then six months later, the sort of stuff that is novel and the things that you're putting in your blog show a clear growth trajectory. That can be really helpful to show that you're putting in the work and you're learning new things and you're leveling up. So I think that's an interesting aspect. Yeah, I do love those. When folks do have those available, I love just going through kind of like what you're saying, like skimming some of the stuff that they've learned in the past to where they are now. And I also just appreciate that earnestness where someone is trying to track their velocity. But that sounds so heavy, but they're tracking their velocity. And then do you also have a burn down chart for your personal growth. <laughs> uh, please don't do that. <laughs> no. And then also just sharing some of the stuff that they've learned. It goes back to the idea of learning in public, Mm -hmm. where you are advocating for the idea that you can share what you've learned as you go, regardless of what state you're at. And that's very attractive to me and a candidate of someone that's looking to apply to a job, is I want someone that feels very comfortable of sharing what they're learning with others, because that will make other people more comfortable. So I, I do think it's a great idea, but I certainly don't think it's a requirement. Right. Skipping over to another topic that was brought up in here is the idea of imposter syndrome, uh, which I think is it's a very common theme throughout the tech industry. And I think in this particular case, it's really interesting to me because you're definitively not an imposter. You're just new. You're new here. That's fine. And I think one of the things that happens in our industry is because it is so accessible, 
we see folks that rocket up to the top of a career ladder or suddenly speaking at conferences and doing all of these things and they get there in two or three years and suddenly that's sort of an expectation and we can see that so clearly. But that's not realistic, I don't think. I think it is perfectly fine and in fact probably very good for people to have a more gradual process. Uh, we have the apprentice program here at ThoughtBot because we want to make sure we have a path for people to take the time, learn the things that they need to and not be expected to be an expert from day one. And so in this case, imposter syndrome is a very, very real thing. I think we've all probably felt it at some point. And I think it's a symptom of just how young of an industry we are and how rapidly the industry changes. I really like what you just said. It's like, you're not an imposter, you're new. Mm -hmm. And funny enough, I hadn't really thought about it in those exact terms, but that's exactly what it is. Like, especially if you're new to something, it's odd that we already place so much pressure on ourselves to think that we can compete with folks that have been in the industry for a long time. And then even if you are someone that's been in the industry for a long time, you're new to something. Like this is such a vast world of so many different areas where you can really become an expert on different topics that regardless of what you're working on, there's probably something new that you're working on. And it's changing constantly. And that's the other part of why we like the job too, is mm. because there's something always new that we're learning and it's changing constantly. And so there's that kind of fun part that we like where we want to be challenged and we want to be new to something, but then we're also beating ourselves up for not already being an expert at it. I certainly understand. I was nervous just this past week when I was onboarding with my new client and then I was pairing with one of their developers. I still get those butterflies each time I'm about to pair with somebody where I'm like, oh man, I hope this goes well. <laughs> I hope I'm not terrible today. I hope I'm not terrible today. <laughs> uh, such a very human feeling, yes. So I think it's unfortunately totally normal to have that. And I think it's very important to recognize that we all have an inner critic and to talk to that inner critic to remind yourself to be very kind to yourself, to appreciate the things that you are doing. And that can circle back to the idea of having a blog because it gives you a really great way to highlight, I am learning something and I am progressing on this journey. So that way you won't look back and think, oh, I haven't, I haven't learned anything in the past month because in truth, you've probably learned a great deal. So yeah, just try to be kind to yourself and then also kind to others. Learning in public will also help encourage others that are experiencing the same imposter syndrome because they'll see you being comfortable to share the stage that you're at. I really love that aspect of learning in public where it's sort of taking the stigma out of everyone should be an expert instantly in everything and being like, no, 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 learning some stuff here. There's, there's a lot going on and uh, I'm not going to know it instantly. But related to that and how fast everything moves, uh, option overload was another thing that was highlighted. So what do you think on that front? I think if you don't already have a strong inkling as to what you're drawn to, like you may already have a particular project or passion in life and you know that there's a particular tool that you want to use or a project that you want to work on. If you don't have one of those and you're still searching for that, then I think it comes back to the idea of talking to people that are already in the space and finding out something that they're passionate about and having them share it with you and then seeing if it resonates with you. So if you're feeling overwhelmed by options one, maybe just pick one and then go with it because then you can't be overloaded by options because you've already chosen one and you're not bound to that option. You can always change later if you decide that it's not for you, but you'll know more at that point as to where you want to go next. And then to just be open to other people sharing their passion with you as to why they love a language, which framework they love, and would they want to spend an hour with you and giving you a tour, getting you up and running. I think at some point it's all about just collecting enough data points to make a choice. And to do that, you have to actively pursue a topic to then collect that context to then make a decision. How about you? I think you've mentioned before this is something that you can relate to where you feel overwhelmed by options. Oh, man, there's so many, so many fun, different things to try. But it's interesting that my answer is about fun. And yeah, I think of it more from a hobbyist perspective, but I think any of them are probably a good answer. I really love everything that you just said there. So I don't think I have too much to add beyond there's a quote that I love from a show called The Shop Talk Show, which is hosted by Chris Coyer of CSS Tricks and Dave Rupert. And they get a lot of listener questions, similar things, and a lot of questions about particular frameworks or learning things or whatever. And their answer consistently has become sort of a joke on the show is just build websites. They just kind of like yell it into the microphone each time. And their answer is like, just try something, just go for it, just build websites. And then they're a little bit more in the JavaScript, WordPress, CSS front end space. So for them, that's the equivalent of like, just build an app would be our version of it potentially. But yeah, just try something. 
make a personal app, make a breakable toy is a phrase that we use internally. I'm not sure where we got it. I'm sure it comes from something, but the idea of having an application that you're working on that you care a little bit about, like maybe two or three people are using it other than you. So if you broke it, someone would notice. There's a little bit of table stakes, but it's not a big deal. You won't get paged on a Friday night at 8 p.m. if this thing goes down. So you're free to experiment and play, but you care just enough that you want to try and that it'll kind of keep pushing you forward. But yeah, build it in anything. Pick any old language or framework. Python is a great option, I think, because it can do a lot of things. If you're going to go in the machine learning data thing, that's great. Ruby on Rails, we obviously love. You can build applications incredibly quickly with that. JavaScript is eating the world. Like There are a lot of great answers for this. I don't think there's any terrible answer. Just build an app. Yeah, I like that. And if you really have like, let's say you've got five options and you just feel stuck and you're like, I don't know which one to do, then pick one for a week and then just commit to that one for a week. See how it feels and then go from there. And then the next week, kind of summarize to yourself, how did it feel? How did it go? Have a have a mini retro <laughs> and ask yourself, how did it go? What would you do differently? Any concerns you have? And then the next week, go for another one. Like you may spend four weeks helping yourself get unstuck, but you'll learn a lot in those four weeks. I imagine it would be a very productive time. Well, thank you so much, Anthony, for writing in and good luck. I hope you um, find ways to address your inner critic and also find a tech stack that you're passionate about. For everyone else out there, we love getting listener questions, so please keep sending them to us. You can reach out to us on Twitter or you can email them to us at hosts at bikeshed.fm. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. This show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review in iTunes. It really helps other folks find the show, and they let us know that folks are listening and enjoying the show, which helps us feel great about continuing to invest the time it takes to put these out. And we did actually get one incredibly kind review or comment on Twitter that I just wanted to read here as an example of a very nice thing someone has said. Uh, Johannes Bruckner on Twitter said, At Bike Shed, you are my Zen garden of developer podcasts. You are the right balance of tech anecdotes, work-life advice, and mechanical keyboard talk. Now I suddenly feel very bad that we didn't mention mechanical we keyboards at all. We didn't talk about mechanical <laughs> keyboards. <laughs> we'll bring it up again next episode. I think I got to buy one soon. So That's one of my favorite compliments that someone's given us on the show. That's really cool. Thank you. Yes. If you did want to give us a review on iTunes, we've included a link in the show notes that will take you straight to the Bike Shed listing in iTunes on your computer or phone. And from there, you can add your rating or review in less than a minute. If you have feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore Bike Shed on Twitter, or you can reach me at Chris Toomey. Or me at S. Vicari. Or hosts at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to the Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. Join our team dedicated to creating products people love to use. With open positions at our studios in Boston, New York, San Francisco, Austin, London, and Raleigh-Durham, come discover a better way to work.